You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. Follow along with me, and then uh, I'll pray and then preach. Starting in verse 11. Paul says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Pray with me. Father, as I've uh, read this uh, word, struck again with um, this picture of who you are. You are an awesome and powerful Savior. You are kind and good faithful Father. Lord, I know that on Father's Day, um, each of us might come into this space today with different emotions and different experiences um, and different thoughts about Dad. um, Lord, I don't know where every person in this room is at this morning, but you do. Yet there is one thing that I do know that every person in this room needs, and that's you, to come and be our Father, to come and be our Papa, to come and be our Daddy. So Father, I pray that you would um, release the power of your Spirit in our midst through the preaching of your Word. You would come and Father us this morning. You would come and shepherd us through your presence. You would come and heal us, strengthen us, and encourage us and challenge us, and even correct us. We just ask you to do that. Help our hearts to um, help our hearts to respond to you this morning. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. These verses um, that I just read are a charge from the Apostle Paul uh, to Timothy, his young son in the faith. There's something very powerful that happens when a uh, father speaks to his child. Something unique. Uh, The Scriptures teach us that both Death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
With our tongues, we can, on the one hand, speak a very deadly, very hurtful, scarring kinds of words that wound people unnecessarily. And yet, on the other hand, with our tongues, we can speak life-giving, encouraging, strengthening, challenging words that motivate people. Paul um, has used a lot of words so far in this letter to Timothy. And as he draws this letter to a close, he's um, just used his words in a very confrontational way with Timothy in previous verses um, that we studied last week. Uh, He's urged Timothy to um, courageously teach and to unwaveringly preach in a way that would stir up conflict in the Ephesian church, right? What what Paul is after here is he he doesn't want Timothy to just shrink back in fear of the false teachers that were present in the church. On the contrary, what Paul has done and is continuing to do here is he's urging Timothy to pull up his bootstraps and draw clear attention with his words to those fallen leaders who were wandering away from the faith and seeking to take others with them. Paul's goal here in this whole section, this kind of final section of this letter seems to be twofold. On the one hand, seems that Paul is concerned with protecting the church from false teachers. On the other hand, he is concerned with stirring up the courage of the church's faithful leaders. Paul knows that if he stays silent on the topic of false teachers, then those wolves will ravage the flock for everything that she's worth. And on the other hand, he also knows very well that it takes every ounce of courage and and then some for a church and her leaders to remain faithfully courageous in the face of intense conflict. There's two, two things happening here that Paul's using his words to speak into as a father to a young son. Paul's words, um, I believe, are backed up and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. These words from Paul are not merely just the words of a man. Christians believe when we read the Word of God that this is the very Word of God, that God Himself is speaking through them. Therefore, we believe that God has chosen and taken the biblical authors and has inspired them in such a way that they would write something that is totally perfect. If it's not perfect, if it's not right and true, and there's no reason for me to be standing on this stage because all you have is the words of a really imperfect man who will constantly let you down. Yet in the Bible, as we read this, we have imperfect men that God came 
and spoke through in a perfect way so that we can be assured and strengthened and challenged. These words from Paul to Timothy, these words will be the difference maker for the Ephesian church and her leaders. They're not just mere words of a man. They're the words of God Himself, our Father speaking through men as His Spirit carried them along. So put yourself in Paul's shoes on, in, on, at that desk that morning, sitting in prison as he's writing this letter. In prison for preaching the gospel. What do you say to a church that stands in danger of being ravaged by savage wolves? Had to have been a question in Paul's mind as he wrote. <clears throat> Father, help me to say what you would have me to say so that it's not just merely my words, but your words. How do I warn them? How do I encourage them to fight the good fight? What, Father, what do I remind them of to help them to remain faithful in the midst of all of the heretical chaos, like lighting up the sky like a 4th of July fireworks show? First thing that I see in um, these verses um, is that you belong to God. Verse 11. You belong to God. Paul, Paul begins to encourage Timothy by reminding him that he belongs to God by saying this. Look back at verse 11. He says, As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now, this really is a profound way to shift Timothy's focus off of the fearful task of confronting wandering heretics onto his identity as a man of God. That's the shift that is just taking place. Previous verses, he's been warning him not to be like those wandering heretics. But now he shifts his focus away from that to his identity as a man of God. There is no better way to bolster a person's courage to do what's right than to remind that person of their unshakable identity in Christ. All the moralistic preaching in the world will never produce the right behavior that God desires. That moralistic preaching is not first founded on whose we are and who we are. Worthless moralistic preaching. It's not first founded on whose we are and who we are. <coughs> now this phrase Paul uses, um, really it's an extremely powerful phrase. This phrase, O man of God. Extremely powerful phrase. Um, at first glance, for us, <clears throat> not sitting in the first century church, <coughs> but now sitting in the church that we're sitting in, at first glance, I think it's easy to miss the power in the punch of the apostles' words here. O man of God. For Timothy, um, this is a phrase that would have stopped him dead in his tracks. He would have heard this, and whatever he was thinking about, his thinking would have been immediately redirected to something else. 
This phrase, O man of God, it's a throwback phrase. Some of the giants of the faith in the Old Testament. That's what this phrase points back to. What Timothy would have immediately thought of. Think of men like Moses, Abraham, David. That's what he would have thought of. Abraham was a friend of God. Moses was a prophetic redeemer of Israel. Them out of slavery. David was the great shepherd king of God's people. These men were heroes. They talked about them. It was part of their culture. They were powerful leaders of God's family here on earth. But here's the thing. The power of their leadership did not rest in their human strength or their human abilities. In fact, every one of these men had some severe weaknesses. The crazy thing about God is He doesn't use perfect people to bring Himself glory. He uses imperfect, weak, broken people to bring glory to Himself. How do you know that God is faithful? Because every person you meet, including the person that you look in the mirror at, is unfaithful. That's how you know that God is faithful. I still have to remember that. Myself. I myself judging the character of God based on the character of imperfect humans so often. The power in these men's leadership did not rest in their human strength or their human abilities. At severe weaknesses, Abraham was a coward. Lied twice about his wife, which possibly, at least very closely, landed her in bed with another man because of his cowardice. Twice, not just once. Women, if you have a husband here, imagine that. Abraham was a coward. Moses was a murderer. David was a lust-filled murderer of his best friend. So Paul's use of this phrase, O man of God, that would have drawn Timothy's attention not to the abilities of these heroes of the faith, but to the power of the God whom they belong to. Their power, their Their courage, their ability, it flowed out of their identity. Sons of God. Likewise, your power, your ability, rests not in your human strength, but in the foundational truth that if you've trusted in Christ Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord and Savior, then you belong to a Father in heaven you belong to Him, then you are called to live for Him. That's the second point. Not only do you belong to God, but if you belong to Him, then you are called to live for Him. Verses 11-12, through 12, Paul says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you 
made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, in, in, in these words, that Paul, like a good spiritual father, uses to instruct his young son in the faith. These words, Paul is reminding Timothy to remember that since he belongs to God, he is also called to live for God. But you might ask the question, and I think it's a wise question to ask, what does it mean to live for God? What does that mean to live for God? Because there seems to be lots of different expressions of that in our world today. You just take the Christian church, for example, and there are enough quote-unquote expressions of what it looks like to live for God. And yet I would submit to you that many, if not most, are not biblical at best. It means that we know that the path is wide and many travel down it that leads to eternal destruction. And the path is narrow and not many get on it that leads to eternal life. So those are the words of Jesus himself. And if he said it, it must be true. Therefore, I think it's wise for us to question what does it really mean to live for God? How would Timothy and the Ephesian church live for God in, all the, in, all, in the midst of all the heretical chaos of the Ephesian culture? You've got leaders in that Ephesian church saying, no, do this. No, do this. No, do that. And they were contradicting one another. <coughs> How would you live for God in, in, in that culture? How are you and I called to live for God in the midst of an American culture that I think is off its flipping rocker? And not just the American culture, but I think the American church in the American culture is off its flipping rocker. When you get pastors that pastor churches and they get to go on TV every week talking about their jets and talking about their 10 to 15 cars in their garage and somehow that is something that, that God blessed them with. That's outright damnable heresy. And it's a prostitution of the gospel. And we live in that day and age. No different than it was then. How will you and I live for God in the midst of this kind of a culture? Paul's answer to those questions is that we are called to, one, run away from some things, two, pursue some things, three, fight for some things, and four, hold on to something. There are some things that we need to run away from in this life. But Timothy needed to flee these things, Paul says. It's a good Spiritual father to his son. Flee these things just as Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife. False doctrine. He's already listed it in the verses from last week. Flee these things. False doctrine. Conceit. Craving for controversial conversations. Quarreling about words. Envy. Dissension. Slander. Evil suspicions. Constant friction, depravity of mind, deprivation of the truth, greed. Flee these things. 
flee from them. Don't flirt with them. Don't make agreements with them. Don't make friends with them. Flee from them. Run away. Timothy needed to run away from these things. We need to run away from these things like the cheating harlots that they really are. There are also some things that we need to pursue in this life. There's some things that we need to run after. There's some things that we need to chase. Paul tells Timothy that he needs to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Timothy needed to pursue those things with the same kind of commitment that a man chases a woman. He needed to pursue those things with the same kind of commitment that Jacob chased Rachel. Seven years of hard work for Jacob to earn the right and the privilege to have the wife that he always wanted. Timothy needed to exhibit the same kind of commitment to pursuing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in his life because he was called to live for God, not for his fleshly desires to hide from conflict. Timothy was a fearful man. We need to pursue the fruit of the Spirit with every ounce of energy and every ounce of resource that we have at our fingertips because we are called to live for God. Why? Because you belong to Him. You're His. Not only are we called to run away from some things, not only are we called to chase after some things, but we are also called to fight for some things in this life. This is where I fear that most Christians in our culture get it wrong. This is an area where I sense that I could preach till I was blue in the face and 99.9% of us will walk out of here and go back to what we were doing before. I think it's a cultural thing. I think there's one big, massive black eye on the church today. I think this is that we have forgotten what the real fight is. We have begun to believe that the fight exists out there and not in here. You read all of the Puritans. You read all of the church fathers. You read them, and, and they, they talk more about fighting a fight in here. Now, don't get me wrong. Puritans church fathers got some things wrong, too, but this is one thing. They got a lot of things wrong, some big Nasty things are on, so don't hear me wrong. We are human, but this is one of the things in our culture that I think we ought to pay attention to. We're supposed to fight for something in this life. <clears throat> Paul instructs Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. He needed to fight for the right things, just like the Apostle Paul, who contended for the truth of the gospel against legalists and false teachers in the church. Paul's concern in the church is where the fight was. Paul's concern outside the church, not the walls, but outside a group of people was for another group of people and it was to love them and to lead them to the truth. He would even say things like, hey, when I was with the Greeks, I became like the Greeks so that I could win them over to the gospel. Not when, hey, when I was like the Greeks, I tried to live like a Jew so they would understand what it looks like to live like a Jew. He didn't do that. 
We have this issue in the church today. I believe. We live in a day and age of social media consumption. We hide out behind our keyboards and our mobile devices. We click and we post things from the safety of our seclusion from one another rather than getting face to face. And in doing so, we think we're fighting the good fight of the faith. By doing all of those things, how deep down inside our private lives are full of corruption and our hearts are consumed with evil desires. I think it's better to fight like David for a fruit-filled heart. You see this in David when he preaches to his own downcast heart. Hope in God alone. Psalm 42 even starts out with, why are you so downcast, all my soul? I shall again hope in God. I mean, I'm so downcast. I'm so sad. I'm so distraught right now. Someday soon I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope in God again. And as you read that psalm along, later on it becomes more pointed. Why are you downcast, all my soul? Not someday I will hope in God. Hope in God, my soul. Like This is a man who is fighting the right fight. fighting the evil desires deep down inside of him rather than the evil things that the world is doing outside of us. I mean, it should make every lick of sense that the world outside of the church who doesn't call themselves Christians is going to live just like they do. What doesn't make sense to me is that people who claim the name of Christ would live the way that they do. The gospel's not fair, is it? gospel is good news for people who don't deserve it. You've been saved and changed by the gospel here today. Whatever you're walking through, don't let Satan tempt you by the fruit that's outside of you. Pay attention to what's happening deep down inside of you. Fight the good fight. Fight for that. And by doing so, you will become a living light in the midst of a dark, perverse, evil, disgusting, and horrifying world. We need to fight the good fight of the faith deep within the hallways of our own wayward hearts before we ever click share on a social media post. Not only is there something to run away from, and something that we need to pursue, something we need to fight for, but there is also something we need to hold on to in this life. According to these verses, Paul instructs Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You see, Timothy needed to hold on to his confession of salvation. He needed to remember that because he had believed the gospel, and because he had confessed his belief in that gospel in the public presence of many witnesses at his baptism, and then I would assume many times since then, since he was a public leader in a church, because of all that, he needed to hold on to it. He needed to cling to it with all of his energy. 
listen to this, living a life for God is absolutely useless. Absolutely impossible if you fail to hold on to the assurance of salvation that you have in Christ. If you don't have that assurance of salvation in Christ, useless to try to live for God. All you're going to do is run around in fear wondering, when am I not going to be right with God? When's my father going to kick me out of the house? Your view of God will be that of an angry father who doesn't love you. Everything that happens to you in this life will make absolutely no sense. I know this from my own personal experience. I know it from reading the scriptures. I know it from walking with other believers in community that the moment where we gain the assurance of our salvation that nothing, absolutely nothing can erase the signature of our Father God through the blood of Jesus Christ on our adoption papers. When that moment happens and you rest assured in that salvation, then you are able to grab a hold of it and never let go. Anything else that you or I were to grab a hold of is useless. We need to hold on to our confession of the gospel just like all of the disciples in the New Testament did except one that I know of and his name was Jude. So summarize point two here. Um, you and I are called to live our lives for God because we belong to God. And the only way we're going to live our lives for God is if we run away from the things that are not of God, right? We live our lives for God if we pursue the things that are of God, namely the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and not some Americanized version of that, but a biblical version of that. <clears throat> we'll live our lives for God if we fight the good fight of the faith deep within the hallways of our hearts, and we will live our lives for God if we hold on to our confession of the gospel in the midst of a dark and perverse world. And here's the thing. Um, all of this living for God, because we belong to God, that's going to require something of us. It's going to require a deep and abiding trust in our good and faithful Father in Heaven. Without a deep abiding trust in our Father in Heaven, there is no life lived for God and there is no belonging to God. And that's point three, verses 13 to 16. In these final verses of our passage for today, we learn that our belonging to God and our living for God is only going to be as good as the God we actually trust in. Now, this is the reason I believe that Paul tells Timothy this. Verses 13 through 16, he says, I charge you, the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, 
who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Can people of God say amen? Say this again. <clears throat> your sense of belonging to God and your living for God is only going to be as good as the God you trust in. <clears throat> the verses we just read here, the final verses, um, paint a picture of a God that is so massive, he's so good, he's so faithful. So good, so faithful, so massive that it's actually almost unimaginable. Because no eye has ever seen the complete fullness of Him. No human eye. Just pause and ask you a question that most of you have heard me ask before that I love to ask my own heart. I love to ask of other people, what, what is your picture of God right now? What is your picture of God right now? In what ways does your vision of our Father in heaven fall terribly short of the person he really is? You see, a small vision of God will always result in a small life lived for God. A small vision of God will always result in a small life lived for God. <clears throat> the greater your vision of God is, <clears throat> the greater your life lived for God will be. The question is, how would you get that? I'm not going to deal with that much here, but I would just say, living in the presence of God is where your vision of God will continue to grow. The result of that will be, your life lived for God will be that much bigger. So, do you want to overcome some barrier today? Walk in, wrestling with something? You want to step into some deeper place of freedom today? And my prayer for all of us this week, my prayer right now in this moment is that the Spirit, the living God, increase our vision of our Heavenly Father right now. That's what I want Him to do. It's something that I am incapable of doing, and yet, over the next few moments, I will do my best to try. Begging the Holy Spirit to come and increase your vision, your Heavenly Father. Paul is charging Timothy to remember that he belongs to God He's been called to live for God. Yet Paul, I think, knows the impossibility of what he's charging Timothy with. Think about Timothy. The verses that we've already studied, the book that we've studied over the last few months, some of Timothy's closest brothers in the ministry were becoming false teachers. He knew their names, he knew their faces, they'd eaten dinner together. Their friends played with each other. Kids played with each other. 
These men had become shipwrecked believers. They were departed disciples. They were wandering heretics. If Timothy didn't pay close attention to his own heart in this season, what would happen? He would become consumed with doubt and despair and fear. As he surveyed the landscape of the battlefield that was littered with the bodies of his fallen brothers. That's what's happening. What will encourage a heart when the people you once counted on have now become casualties of war? How will you rest in the assurance that you belong to God when your closest friends have become traitors? How will you live the life that God has called you to live when the lives of your trusted brothers have become shipwrecked on the shores of spiritual warfare? The only answer Paul can give to Timothy is the very same answer that every one of us needs right now. You can trust in God. He alone is faithful. Your sense of belonging to God and your living for God is only going to be as good as the God you trust in. That's why Paul paints such an almost unexplainable picture of the God that we can trust in. Listen to this description. He is the ever-present God. But this charge, this command, this instruction flows from says, in the presence of God, I give you this charge. That's a, that's a heavy thing to say. Paul's saying, these aren't just my words, these are God's words. He is the ever-present God that this charge flows from. He will never leave you or forsake you, even in the moments of your deepest despair and greatest fear. In Christ, we have a Savior, and not only a Savior, we also have a king who faced down his enemies while never losing his grip on the good confession of our good father. See, because of Christ, our sin stains have been washed white as snow. Though you and I once played the harlot, and though we once were covered in the sins of scarlet, his work at the cross, Jesus Perfect work at the cross. And let's not forget that He is perfect. He didn't deserve to face the penalty that we deserved. It's not fair. Why would a perfect man come to pay the price that I deserve to pay? His work at that cross washes us clean. It not only washes us clean, but it seals our identity as adopted children of God that can never be erased. All of your sin has been erased by that which is unerasable. That's assurance. Out of this identity, as perfect sons and daughters of God, then we are enabled to live lives that are unstained and free from reproach, as Paul tells Timothy. Able to do that as we look forward to the return of Christ and the hope of heaven. We trust in this returning <coughs> King of Kings, not only Savior, but 
more than enough, but he's also the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Trust in his return because we know that at the very right time, although there are days when I'm like, Jesus, would you please come back right now? Every time I hear of another child hurt by her daddy, every time I hear of another marriage that went south, every time I hear of one painful experience after another, every time I watch one brother or sister shipwreck their faith, I beg the Lord, please come back. Look forward to the return of Christ and the hope of heaven. Trust in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know at the right time, not my time, at that right time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is who He says He is. And because of that, that means that you and I are who He says we are. He alone is blessed. He alone is completely sovereign and in control when the world is spinning out in chaos. I don't have the answers and I don't know why this or that is happening or has happened. I do know that he is in charge and he's perfect. Therefore, he has a perfect purpose. Life is not meaningless. (coughs) And this life is not all there is to our existence. We serve a king who is immortal, according to Paul here. According to all the scriptures, we serve a king who is immortal. Therefore, we look forward to perfect immortality in heaven. Though we struggle with our broken lives now, we look forward to heaven where every broken person will be completely healed once and for all. God is so glorious that the light that he inhabits cannot even be approached or seen by mere humans in the flesh. You might remember that Moses was nearly consumed by the glory of God's backside. This is the God that you can trust. This is the God that you live your life to honor. Why? Because He has complete authority, dominion. The last word of this verse dominion, authority, control over everything. So in conclusion, I I only want to ask one question. Have you given God the honor that He deserves by surrendering your life to His authority? Ask it again. Have you given God the honor He deserves by surrendering your life to His authority? It's, It's interesting to think that People sitting in a church all look the same on a Sunday morning. We all stand at the same time. We sit at the same time. We pray prayers. We might take communion. We sing songs. We take notes. We look the part. Between Sunday and Sunday, what does your life look like? Do you belong to God? Are you living your life for God? Are you trusting in God? comes back to that one question. Have you given God the honor He deserves by surrendering your life to His authority? See, here's the thing. If you do not trust in God, 
then you are not living your life for God, which means you do not belong to God. If you do not belong to God, then you are not able to sing the songs that we sang today with meaning. Those songs are being sung then in a room full of people who do believe and do trust and the hope and the desires that something infectious would happen in the midst of that as God comes and inhabits, literally lives in the praises of his people and lives in the preaching of his words so that something would affect your heart. <clears throat> so that something from that would happen and that would be that God by the power of his spirit would come and take your heart of stone out of you and give you a brand new heart that beats with affection for him. Because prior to belonging to God, living for God, and trusting God, prior to that, dead in your sins, and you're headed somewhere that none of us wants anyone to go. Every one of us in this room that is following Christ knows what that's like to have been brought out of that moment. For me, it was in the middle of the street on my motorcycle as I got hit by a truck. It happened like that. It's called the doctrine of regeneration. In a moment, God comes and does what a sovereign God in salvation does. Plucks out the old heart, drops in the new, new, new heart. And in that moment, he says, justified. Completely perfect. It's a work of God. You and I would never be able to accept him. It's not like this little part of good inside of you that's like, well, I recognize that God loves me so much, now I want him. Actually, the moment that you recognize that your father loves you, that moment is because God enabled you to recognize that. And therefore, you can trust him and be fully assured at that point forward that you belong to him. Now you can live your life for him because you trust him. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I uh, thank you for your word again. And I thank you for the privilege that it's been to uh, preach this word to this uh, room of people. And I pray, Father, that you would take it now and that you would um, turn our hearts to you and help us to worship you and to praise you. Help us to commune now um, with you in a special way as we close. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.